You know, one of the more unfortunate attributes of modern men is this constant state of apology that many men are operating from. And not because men aren't responsible for some of what they're apologizing for, but individual men in particular uh, are operating from this place of original sin, almost. And I was talking about original sin in a recent episode, and how you can use original sin as a way of saying, I'm not perfect. I'm not capable of embodying the perfection that is God, or acting it out like Jesus, or, you know, anybody, Buddha, Krishna, you know, whatever qualities you want to assign uh, perfection to. I mean, I think perfection transcends qualities, individual human qualities. It's so all-encompassing and all-encompassed that it's hard to say, like, oh, well, perfection is having, is being really good at this. Perfection is being really good at these qualities. You know, I'm not going to say that. I think it's too large for that. Uh, but you can choose to look at original sin in a constructive way, and just it's a way of just saying, oh, I'm not going to have a perfect score, no matter what. I have that against me. I have, you know, I'm operating on a bell curve, a grading bell curve, where, you know, no matter how good my grade is, it's only going to be this percentage. And I don't think there's anything unhealthy about that, but I think it becomes path, uh, pathologized and, you know, my favorite word, malignant. It becomes very malignant. And you have Christians who live these, you know, very patho uh, pathological lives where it's basically they're in this constant state of repentance. And they've decided to focus on, you know, basically torturing themselves incessantly throughout their entire lives or after they're born again because of this original sin that they live with, this internalized guilt. Uh, and uh, I'm certainly not describing all Christians. There are many Christians who have managed to use that idea of original sin and the surrounding ideas, the surrounding influences, in a way that is constructive and is beneficial to them and others. Uh, but we see this playing out, you know, interestingly, with the modern left in particular, with the idea of this internalized white male guilt and this constant torturing of yourself, this living in a state of just nonstop apology. And, you know, it's, it's no way to live, for one, and I don't live that way for the simple reason that, that it is no way to live. And I even get hard on myself about making disclaimers. If you've listened to this show enough, you've heard me talk about that, probably not that long ago, where, you know, a disclaimer is a preemptive apology, and it weakens, if not negates, whatever you're about to say. It's the equivalent of, I mean, a great disclaimer is the classic cliche, you know, I'm not racist, but... And, you know, the word race, racism, racist, has lost most of its meaning. It's, it's, it's been a word that's it's become distorted, and it's lost a lot of its value, its critical value. Uh, but, you know, it's like saying, you know, I'm not racist, but... And then you go on to say something cruel about a particular group. It's like gossiping and saying, you know, I love Sally Mae, but then you go on to say something that's really not very loving about your dear friend Sally Mae. Uh, bless her heart. Bless her hearts. She has five of them. 
and they're all beating in in rhythm. Uh, but you know, it's it's very similar to that. This idea of of giving a disclaimer. Those are disclaimers. That's what you're doing. And when you give one, you should really question what it is you're saying and why. Because either it means you don't mean the preemptive apology. Either the preemptive apology is bullshit, I love Sally Mae, either that's bullshit, or you don't actually love her, you're just saying that so that you can say something hateful, which is what you truly feel, or the disclaimer is the is bullshit, and what you're about to say, you know, or, or, or rather, the disclaimer is the truth, and what you're about to say after that is bullshit for whatever reason. So you actually do love Sally Mae, but for whatever reason you feel pressured to talk shit. Maybe the person you're talking to is a master shit talker, the queen of shit talk, and that's the currency when you're communicating with her or him, and therefore you feel the need to say something bad about someone because that's what that person does. And that's a very real scenario that plays out all the time, where you're kind of almost, without even knowing it, psychologically coerced into saying something bad about someone that you don't actually have anything bad to say about, because that's the currency of the situation you're in and you want you don't want to be bullied by this person or you just want to fit in. So if when you make a disclaimer, what you're basically doing is lying about something. You're either lying and if it's not full-blown lying, you're at least being, you know, somewhat dishonest, uh, which is a form of lying, you know. There's a gradient. Not every lie is equal, you know. Uh, but basically what you're doing is you're you're either negating the disclaimer or you're negating what you're about to say when you make a disclaimer. Uh, and in making disclaimers, you're, as I said, making a preemptive apology. And someone who feels the need to make a preemptive apology is basically living in a world of apology. And I do feel we are in that. I feel we are in this world of apology where, you know, you can't even show a TV show. You can't show anything on TV, on a website, without some kind of legal disclaimer somewhere, without some fine print somewhere. And that's a way of saying, you know, um, you know, we're sorry if you do something stupid if you watch this, but uh, not our fault. We're sorry, but not sorry. I mean, that's basically what you say when you give a disclaimer. And you have people, I mean, that's such a common phrase itself. Sorry, sorry, not sorry. People don't realize how accurate that is for the way that our world operates today. Uh, so, you know, disclaimers themselves and, you know, warnings, all of that. And, I'm, you know, yeah, warning labels have some necessity. I'm not going to turn this into like, a complete nightmare of like, what's, what's the big deal with warning labels and seatbelts? Um, even though I'd love to go into that. Uh, but uh, uh, just this idea, though, of like men in particular, and I don't relate to this, but I know where it comes from, living in this world of original sin, where you're basically constantly apologizing to other people for being a man, for being a white man. And again, that doesn't mean not taking any responsibility for what it means to be a white man, both the good qualities and the bad qualities and the history. It doesn't mean ignoring anything. It doesn't mean never acknowledging that. Uh, but, you know, it does mean you're in this constant, you know, state of self-torture. You know, you're flagellating yourself. And just to, you know, go into you know, this alien view, this, you know, I'm going to invoke alien view. I like to talk about how would this look to aliens? What would the aliens see? What would be the bigger picture that the aliens are looking down on? And I, I like to invoke alien view. I've come up with a term for it uh, as of today, Al invoking alien view. 
it's like in a video game when you can change the view of the character. You know, you can you can decide to be first person, you can decide to be third person, you can do a, a top down view. Well, it, this is kind of like that, and you have to do it mentally. You go, I'm going to invoke alien view, and I'm going to I'm going to try to see this whole human, this this allegedly complex human thing from an alien view, and and I'm going to look down and I'm going to say, okay, here's these people who think they disagree with each other or think that they have fundamentally different values. And on one side, you have these people who believe in this concept of original sin, and a bunch of them are beating themselves up about it. And they believe Judgment Day is coming. And then on this other side, this other group that thinks that they're at war with those people, in this culture war at the very least with those other people, they believe in this idea that they they didn't do it, but there was something... In, in their the core of them that is inherently guilty, and they believe in this other form of judgment day called global warming. Those are two pretty, uh, you know, those are that's a pattern, or that's, that's some sort of, there's, there's a, a very, uh, that's like a mirror image, you know, and that's what you see with these supposedly different people, where it's like, oh, this guy's a, you know, he's a modern liberal man, and he's, he believes that he did something wrong that he didn't actually do himself, and he believes the world is going to come to an end if we don't repent, because the world's getting hotter, and there's floods and fires, and all, God knows what what else. Uh, or actually, not God, because he doesn't believe in God. Uh, but he does believe that some sort of judgment day is coming, some sort of Ragnarok, some sort, the, the end of the Kali Yuga, I guess, you know, might not be the exact same thing, the end of the Kali Yuga, but we see these ideas play out in all kinds of different cultures, ancient culture, uh, ancient cultures, and then we see them now. You know, we see people who are supposedly secular playing out the same scenarios, both in their own individual selves and in their view of, you know, worldwide catastrophe. Uh, and then on the other side, though, it's like you have this person who they feel inherently guilty for something they didn't do, and they believe Judgment Day is coming, and it's going to be marked by floods and fires. And it's like, and these people think that they can't get along. <laughs> you know, they, they think that they can't sit in the same room with that person. Uh, sometimes these people are blood-related, and one's the uncle, and they I'm not going to Thanksgiving this year because, you know, Uncle Dan believes in... Uh, all this shit. The only difference is, is that one is allegedly secular and one allegedly believes in, you know, some kind of God. And it's just funny how that plays out. Um, and from alien view, it's like, these people are the exact fucking same. You're the same. Uh, but living with that idea, like in the same way, though, that I, I used original sin in a recent episode to say that, you know, that's basically, it makes life a lot easier because you can just say, oh, I, I'm incapable of being perfect. And that doesn't mean that I should use it as an excuse to be, you know, an idiot. It doesn't mean I should use it as an excuse to, you know, just live the shittiest life possible or to hold myself to no standard. But you can say, okay, I'm incapable of perfection, but, you know, at least that's a pretty good idea. At least, you know, whatever perfection is to me, and I think, you know, no matter who you are, I think the idea of, perf- you know, I, I mentioned how, you know, it's hard to define something like perfection, uh, especially when it's an impossibility to you as a human. How could you define something that's an utter impossibility? But that said, our idea of perfection is probably pretty good. I mean, if you're a human being and your idea of true perfection is shitty, 
uh, I, I don't even know. I mean, I don't, think, I don't think it's possible. I think even no matter how shitty you think life is, no matter how much life sucks, your idea of perfection is still going to be somehow good. Therefore, it's it's a standard, you know, that you know you can at least set your sights to. I, I mentioned in the recent episode, seeing perfection as the most distant shore, as it's referred to in you know Buddhist terms, and you know you don't have to get there. But, you know, you might encounter some great things. You might encounter some great shores along the way. So living with this other side of it where it's like this, you know, destructive side of original sin where it's like, oh, that means that I've got to just beat myself up and be miserable and, and live in this constant state of repentance and apology and disclaimer and hypocrisy and contradiction and just at the very least, not be a very fun person to be around, because that's a commonality you see between, you know, right-wing evangelical Christians and, you know, modern left, whiny, you know, whatever you want to call them, you know, uh, whatever you want to call them. I don't, even, I don't think there's one universal word I can use for men of that type, but I think most people know what kind of man that is. And, uh, you know, in both cases, they're people that you don't really want to be around. And they don't make good friends. You know, someone who's living in a constant state of apology doesn't make a very good friend. And, you know, one of the reasons for that is because, in my experience, male friendships don't really require explicit apologies. You know, men don't apologize to each other by saying, I'm sorry. And that doesn't mean you can't do that. It doesn't mean there's not a time and a place where a man should apologize directly to another man, especially when he directly did something. Uh, but that said, in most cases, in most practical cases, I don't think men really need to apologize to each other. And it's not that they don't need to apologize. It's just that they have a different system for doing it. And I don't know that this is universal. I don't know that every culture is the same. But I've experienced it enough with enough different people. I've observed it enough to feel that I'm, I know at least a little bit about what I'm talking about. Uh, and it's it's weird, too, because it's that idea, you know, people like to talk about how, like, men can, you know, get mad at each other and beat each other up and then be friends the next minute, and they release that tension and got it out by fighting, and I've never really had that experience, you know, I've roughhoused with friends, and it's been serious before, but I've never really been a fighter, you know, never, it's never really come to blows, I feel like I'm the kind of person where if something comes to blows, it's going to be really bad, and it's going to be hard to, hard to recover one way or another from that. Uh, but that said, it's like a lot of my friendships have had a certain uh, volatility to them where things do get heated. And I, I can think about one of my best friends who's still one of my best friends. And, you know, some of the we'll, we'll have these conversations and they get very volatile, you know, and they about petty things sometimes, too, just small differences of, of opinion that get really heated. And sometimes, you know, you know, one of us will even say something that, uh, is pretty aggressive or is pretty, you know, in that moment, it's, you know, not very, uh, I don't know, it's mean, you know, something like that. It's something that's just, it's very cutting. And, and this friend in particular, he's very good about being cutting. And he's still my friend. And I love the fact that he's so cutting. And he's not always right just because he's cutting. <laughs> I'm right a lot of the time too. But he's, uh, he's very cutting. And 
I've I don't I don't want to get into like other people's friendships or interactions, but I I can think of examples where he's said very cutting things to other people, other friends of ours, and they haven't fully recovered from that. You know that fr- their friendships haven't fully recovered, and I'm not going to get into that. You know, it's not about that. I'm just talking about my own interaction. But there are times when I'm like, man, this motherfucker. I'll even say that I'm like, you know, you motherfucker. Uh, you know, things along those lines and just even the ability to say that and recover for it. I mean, there's people out there where if you uh, heatedly call them a motherfucker, that friendship's probably not going to last. And (laughs) there's other things you can say too. There's other just, it might not even be like name calling. I'm not much of a name caller. Uh, But, uh, you know, sometimes it can come to that. And I wouldn't say I'm like, you know, I, I don't. I typically don't have friendships that are like those bro sort of friendships where you just are constantly like punching each other or like calling each other like names. I don't really have those, so I don't want to give the impression that those are the sort of friendships I have. They're generally, you know, a little more cerebral, but still they can be very cutting. And they, in the same way that those like jock sort of stereotypical friendships where everybody's like constantly calling each other, you know, offensive slang terms for not being straight whatever how's that for not quite a disclaimer but how's that for evading a word not using a word um i'm sorry i'm sorry i didn't use the word um i'm so sorry <laughs> uh but you know in the same way that that kind of sparring plays out in that way of just like literally punching each other in the arm giving each other dead arms or playing that fucking circle game or whatever the fuck people do calling each other names um you know, I think that plays out in a lot of like, you know, fr- uh, male friendships, or even if it is more cerebral, uh, there's still a, a certain level of sparring that's necessary. And sometimes that sparring hurts. You know, I don't mean like some deep emotional pain. I just mean like literally, like it can be cutting. It can like, it could be, oh man, like you just said that. You, or, or you just called me out for this and, you know, blah, blah, blah. You can spar with people. But I appreciate that level of volatility and, even when it gets insulting to me, you know, and I'm not necessarily talking about any one friendship here, but even when something becomes insulting, I don't need an apology the next time we talk. Because that gets communicated somehow, and not just in like, oh, we're just going to keep going through the motions. You know, because sometimes that's what happens is you get in like some sort of conflict with somebody, and the next time you see them or talk to them, everyone just acts like nothing happened. And I think that is a form of as weird as it sounds, that is a form of apology. There's an understanding where it's like, we don't need to address this shit. We know. That's where I, you know, I talk about, you know, having some sort of psychic ability. It's not about power. It's not about some, you know, powerful clairvoyance, some like uh, mystical, paranormal psychic activity. I think just being able to carry on like normal after a conflict and everyone being okay with it and everyone knowing that they're okay with it that's a form of psychic understanding, uh, and it's simple and it's practical. Uh, but sometimes, you know, something does need to be communicated where, you know, someone, you know, is sorry or, or needs to address an issue, and they don't need to say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, okay? Friends, they don't need to do that. They don't need to go through that ritual, that, that theatrical melodrama of, of like an apology. They don't need to do that. And they can communicate it somehow through tone. And sometimes it, it is a very, it, it is like a very tonal. There's some subtlety to it. People think men are dumb. You know, some people, I guess. 
I don't know. Is a it seems like every commercial now because this this kind of plays into what I'm talking about. Every TV commercial. I'm watching a lot of TV because it's football season. Every commercial is naturally, you know, the the man. And this isn't some like why don't they just leave the men alone uh, thing. It's just I, this is a pure observation. Every single commercial, the man, particularly the white man, is the butt of every joke. Watch TV and just pay attention. I'm not saying this to try to rile anybody up. I'm not saying any. I'm not saying this because I'm even mad. Here I am giving a disclaimer when I'm just pointing out a fucking observation that's I can see on TV. It's the truth. What's going on in the culture war right now has led, you know, TV commercials where you know the butt of the joke. If it's a if it's a husband and wife scenario, the husband is the butt of the joke. He's the fool. He's the fool in every TV commercial. If if there's a, a diverse cast on the commercial, you know, the white man is the butt of the joke. I'm not taking offense. I'm not doing anything. I'm just commenting on what I see. Uh, but uh, but I'm not I'm not mad at commercials. But here's here's a, an observation that I about something that I I've noticed that isn't entirely agreeable to me about modern television commercials. Um, but things are very subtle, and I mean, like, I, I do think there's this idea that, oh, like, men lack the emotional complexity to communicate an apology without saying sorry and have both parties understand it. Not true. Uh, it's it's just like the myth about men not letting other, like, the boys don't cry myth. Yeah, sure, it's true in some scenarios, but there are certain circumstances where even the most hardened, tough man... And everybody, you know, in between and, and you know, below that, whatever, uh, you know, understands when it's acceptable for a man to cry. And it's actually very powerful. Even even the toughest guy out there will probably tell you, he might not admit it, but inside he knows that there is a certain time where when a man cries, where it is, it is incredibly powerful, it is acceptable. So this whole boys don't cry thing is very much a myth in my opinion. And maybe just in my experience, maybe I didn't grow up in a place or have like a, like a a dad who was that much of an asshole. I don't know. You know, I didn't grow up in the South or the Midwest or, you know, whatever, uh, scapegoated area people blame all this shit on. Uh, I'm just saying what I've experienced and seen having known a lot of different types of dudes, uh, in a lot of different, with a lot of different interests and a lot of, and, and, parts of various subcultures and even cultures to some degree. I don't know. It doesn't mean that certain that, you know, crying your eyes out is, is encouraged or people like it, but there is a time and a place where it's acceptable. And I think most men would agree to that. Um, but in the same way, I think people, they, that's kind of related to this idea that, Oh, men don't have the capacity to communicate in, in a manner that is emotionally subtle yet still, conveys the intended message and like i was saying that like apologies sometimes are communicated in tones if you've had a fight with a friend sometimes you know you get a call from them and you can just you can hear in their voice right away that there's some level of reservation and they want things to be all right and in in hitting that note and having that tone of voice and it's not necessarily like some weak tone of voice like it's not frail but there's just in hearing that you know oh this person's sorry and maybe there are situations where you need somebody to address something you know i talked in a recent episode which is becoming my new slogan i talked in a recent episode if you've been following along 
Uh, I talked in a recent episode about how, uh, <laughs> and then I, I say that and I forget. I forgot what I, I forgot what I talked about in a recent episode. Um, I talked about, you know, rotating characters and how sometimes those are, you know, friendships and relationships of your life. And sometimes people drift out of your life because of a falling out. Sometimes they just, it's just the natural course of events and just distance widens for whatever normal, natural reason, not because of any problem. But sometimes it is because of a fallout and someone, you know, rotates out of your cast of characters. Uh, Sometimes they rotate back. Sometimes that needs to be addressed. Sometimes it doesn't. It fits in perfectly with what I'm talking about, where sometimes someone will come back into your life and you're like, you just pick up, you know, the beat carries on. You know, the beat just carries on like normal. Uh, and other times, maybe something does need to be addressed. And I don't have too much experience with that. I don't have too much experience uh, crawling, to, you know, and, and like grabbing at someone's ankles and saying, I'm so sorry for what I said. And I don't have any experience with people doing that to me, where they come crawling back and they're like, I was wrong. Uh, I just It's just not something I've had much experience with. But I, I think it does happen, and sometimes it's necessary. And I say that uh, with the knowledge that some people who have rotated out of my life, some characters who have rotated out, I think something would have to be addressed, both by me and by them, but mostly by them. Uh, no, but really, I, I think that there are some times where you do have to address... I'm sorry I fucked your wife, okay? Uh, <laughs> you know, no experience with that. But uh, but just there are some things that need to be addressed. And so I'm not saying that, you know, men have some uh, past where everything can be communicated psychically with some sort of, like, subtle change in vo- voice tone. You know, I'm not saying that at all. But what I'm leading up to here is that this is a major discrepancy in my experience in the way that men and women communicate. Because I've heard women say it's kind of one of those cliche things, and I feel like I'm, you know, climbing up to the edge here of of the just some really cliche and annoying like men and women. The differences between men and women. Guys, you know what I mean. You know, I feel like I'm teetering up on the edge of that. But really, there, you know, all those things are playing on something in most cases. And in this case, you know, one of them is apology. And you, you'll hear like cheap stand-up comedy or outdated stand-up comedy where it's like, my wife always wants me to apologize for things that I don't even know I did. And uh, there is some truth to that, though. Or at least, you know, it's not that like I think men don't know what they did. It's that they don't know why they need to directly apologize because it's not what they normally do. And again, this isn't some like get out of jail free card, get out of an apology free card. I'm not saying that men shouldn't apologize. And in fact, what I'm leading up to here is all building somewhere. It's all building up to the edge. Um, is that, you know, men do need to understand that women need a more direct apology. It doesn't mean that you have to be constantly apologizing. You certainly shouldn't uh, do that. You shouldn't be in a state of constant apology because either you're either you're not sincere. If you're, if you're constantly apologizing to your girlfriend or your wife or whatever, it's like you're either insincere about it and just doing it as sort of like a preemptive apology, a disclaimer. You're either doing it as a disclaimer because you're a shitty boyfriend or husband, or you're just confused all the time and you think that that's going to make it better to just be this like weak, blubbering 
you know, whipping yourself, you know, your own whipping boy. Uh, you know what would make this relationship better? If I became my own whipping boy. Uh, maybe for some people. Some people are into that. Um, everybody's whipping boy. Uh, but, uh, you know, some, you know, nobody should be in a state of constant apology, but it is something that, you know, men need to learn is that, yeah, you can't necessarily apologize in the same ways. And I, I, maybe you can, I don't know. Maybe you can, maybe the, I think there are probably subtleties to the way that a couple can apologize to each other that don't require like an explicit, I'm sorry, which is always great when someone that's like, I love like just totally insincere, like openly insincere apologies where someone doesn't even try to cover it up. They don't even try to act like it's real. They don't even do that fake voice. It's very, when someone does a fake apology, like when someone tries to like pretend that their insincere apology is sincere, it reminds me a lot of like when you call out sick to work and you're like, uh, you're trying to sound sick because you don't want to sound too normal. So you almost do this fake sick voice, this insincere sick voice, but your boss knows that's not what a real sick person sounds like. But on the other hand, if you sound too normal, because I've been really sick before and I've called work and been, and I've sounded normal because maybe I don't have a sore throat or a cold. Maybe I've got something else. You know, maybe it's the lower half of my body, not the upper, you know, maybe not my neck up. But if you don't sound like a sick person, if you don't sound like you have a cold, you must not be sick. Uh, you know, but it's, it's kind of similar to that where, when someone's like trying to pass off a, an apology as sincere when it's not, they'll almost do this like fake, this fake, uh, it's like this fake conscientiousness. Um, but I love it when people are just out and out, like they don't even try to hide the fact that their apology isn't sincere and it's just like they yell it. I'm sorry. You know, because that always works. Some of the best apologies in history, if there was a book listing, you know, the 100 best apologies in history, they'd just be someone screaming at it. The most effective apology in the world is screamed. Maybe it is. Maybe there's maybe there's a certain circumstances where just screaming an apology is exactly uh, what you need to do because it's it means that much to you. Oh, I you guys you guys have one of those scream and apology relationships, don't you? Uh, you know, but the, I don't know. There is, I think that that is something between men and women that, you know, men, I think, do need to, you know, make it clear when they're genuinely apologetic for something. And of course, women should do it as well. Uh, they, people should apologize for things that they are genuinely sorry about and that they think need to be addressed. Otherwise, you do end up living in this world of original sin where. Uh, in a relationship where something isn't addressed and you're constantly guilty, and then that's a whole other form of original sin. Whereas you can really use the idea of original sin, not not just personally, not just with you, uh, but also, you know, with everybody, that, not just like a romantic relationship, but also any kind of friendship, and understand that, oh, hey, this situation is imperfect, you know, we are two people who are imperfect, whether we're, whether you're just friends, acquaintances. Oh, we have one of those. I, I like to do that with my acquaintances. I like to just get it all out there in the open and say, hey, you know, I really like that we are acquaintances and we occasionally nod to each other in public, but don't really stop and talk very much. And if we do, it's just small talk that neither of us wants to participate in. But we feel like if we don't do it, we'll be a dick. Um 
Uh, but, uh, you know, I just want to acknowledge that this is an imperfect acquaintanceship. We have an imperfect acquaintanceship. And in acknowledging that, we can make it a great acquaintanceship. It's the same thing for friends. It turns out acquaintanceships work the same way that friendships do, that romantic relationships do, that family relationships do. You just have to have kind of this understanding like, oh, this is imperfect. We are imperfect, and this, therefore we have created a, a third imperfect entity called our relationship. And in addressing that, we can actually make this a great relationship because we know that it's imperfect, and that doesn't mean that we have no standards. We actually have you know, some kind of standard below perfection, but still we can, we can look to that distant shore together. We can both row this boat. Uh, you know, that's, that's a real thing, too. And, and so much of friendship, too, is, is not... Uh, I mean, I would say what the true sign of friendship is, you know, f- being fully aware of someone's imperfections and accepting them anyway, and even appreciating their imperfections, maybe. Because maybe what brought you together is your mutual imperfections. And, uh, you know, and I think that's a sign of uh, friendship, is not, not holding someone to too high of a standard, because the understanding is, oh, we're imperfect. And I, I know very well what your imperfections are, because you're comfortable enough to either tell me about them or expose them to me, to expose them. He was arrested last night uh, for exposing his imperfections to a busload of children. Uh, <laughs> No, but really, uh, it, that is a large part of what friendships or anything is, you know, is just it's knowing what someone's imperfections are because you're comfortable enough to let them show or just over time, you're even if you're not comfortable enough to let them show, it's you're going to notice, <laughs> you know, if someone's truly your friend, eventually they're going to notice that you're always five minutes late or whatever it is that, you you know, you always got something going, uh, always got a flat tire. Uh, but no, yeah, that's, that's a large part of what friendship is. Um, but, and what all this plays into, too, is taking a certain level of responsibility. Because it's not about, you know, because when someone apologizes, we, we have this idea that when someone apologizes, that's the only way that you can take responsibility for your actions. And it's one way. It's one way of addressing it. And the thing is, though, people apologize all the time without taking responsibility. That's why apologies can be very empty, and that's why living in a state of constant apology, uh, you know, generally means you're not taking responsibility because you're just focusing on this weird mantra, this you know, verb, this, this verbalize, this verbalization of your internalized guilt, and that's not an action. Saying that kind of shit over and over again, apologizing all the time, you know, that's not an action. Whereas taking responsibility is very much an action. And there's it's and when someone says I'm going to take responsibility for this, you know nobody goes oh I'm I'm so glad that person took responsibility. It's something you have to show. It's something you have to do through your behavior. Uh, you know someone can say I accept your apology. I don't accept your apology. But when you take responsibility, it's not something that someone can just go okay. I'm going to take your word for it. It's something you have to show, and that's the true power of responsibility. And it's what happens when you take responsibility for the fact that you're imperfect. When you take responsibility for it, you start to you know, actually do something. You take some kind of action. 
And that's what's missing from all this, you know, bullshit talk. There's so much fucking talk. We have all these different means to communicate, and I love them. I will never phone shame. I will never social media shame. I will never text shame. I could even get into all the individual components uh, of your phone, and I would never shame you for using any of those apps to communicate with somebody. But I feel like what's been lost in this mass proliferation of words and language is is a lack of action and the mistake that responsibility is is done verbally and it's like no that's not how it works that's not how it works and i've only learned about responsibility you know in the last few years you know i didn't really understand what it was and uh i was reading a book recently and it's it's a new age book about possibility written by a couple the guy is a uh the hubby uh, is a uh, <laughs> he's like an orchestra director, and the wife is a psychologist. And I've I've had zero interest. I have zero interest in these people. The book is like coming from this very new age, like something that your boss would read and then try to like implement it poorly in a company. It's got that feel to it, but it was given to me by someone who you know thought I would like it, uh, and I was just I had it sitting on a table, you know, and. And for months, and I was like, I'm going to read this because it was a gift, and I think I can get something out of it. It plays into that whole idea of uh, of phone calls. Um, now it plays into that. It plays into that idea of of, of just dis- it's it's a call from Tennessee. It plays into that idea when you receive the the, the telephone call of a lifetime from Tennessee, telling you about uh, a book about possibility. No, but this book was sitting there, and I was like, you know, I don't want to read this. I don't like the the cover of the book. I'm judging the book by its cover. I don't like the idea. I don't like the idea of it. I I, I do like the idea of it. It's about possibility, which I like. But it's just like there's just something about it that it told me like, uh, this isn't your kind of book. But I was like, I'm all about getting ideas from people I don't like. I'm all about getting ideas from people that I don't want to listen to. It's become very important to me, and it's become very helpful. Even if I just can't stand somebody, I love getting a piece of knowledge from them because if a piece of knowledge can withstand the dissonance of dislike, you know, if a piece of knowledge can still come to you through you know, those stormy waters of hating somebody. And I mean, I say that very casually. I'm not talking about a deep hatred, but just being like, I don't, I don't like what that person is. I don't like what they stand for. I don't like what they wear. I don't like uh, their earring, you know, but if, if a piece of knowledge can come to you, even in those circumstances, you know, it's good fucking knowledge because you didn't want to, to, you didn't want to accept it, but you did anyway, you know, and you can get very extreme with that example, you know, with, uh, you know, demonic, you know, fascist world leaders who've killed tons of people. If you can get like a piece of knowledge from reading something they wrote, hopefully not about, you know, genocide or something, but hopefully just something philosophical. If you can get that even from them, that's probably a good piece of knowledge. Uh, these people, though, weren't, you know, fascist dictators. There's just some like East Coast couple and the book reeked of this like sweater wearing East Coast academic new age you know, I don't know, but I read it anyway, and there were good ideas in there. There were a bunch of them. There was a bunch of stuff I didn't like, but there was a bunch of stuff I liked, and one thing I really liked in it dealt with the idea of taking responsibility, and it talked about how 
you know, instead of seeing yourself as the player or the chess piece, you know, seeing yourself as the board, seeing yourself as the chess board, and that means taking responsibility for everything going on on and around that board. And that's extremely difficult to do. And what I liked about that example is they related it to a car accident where you get rear-ended. I like a good harsh example uh, like that. I like when a, you know, when some, you know, soft touch East Coast orchestra psychology couple, you know, I love when they use just a harsh example, like a, like a car accident. So that's what they used. They were like, you know, when you get rear-ended, it's very easy to be like, well, I'm not, I'm not to blame. But they were like, but you were there. You know, you knew stati- the statistical probability of getting into a car accident when you drive your car. Uh, and you happen to be there at that exact time. And that's very difficult for people to wrap their brains around because it's like they rear-ended me. They were texting. You know, because the great thing about a car accident, and I hate to talk about car accidents, actually. They're, they're barbaric and terrifying, and we should have much stricter traffic laws. That's one of my big things is, you know, if you want to make people wear seatbelts, what the fuck? Like, that's their own responsibility. That's their own safety. But the fact that our other laws, like speeding laws should be way harsher, uh, you know, running a, a red light, you should have to go to fucking jail if you run a red light, in my opinion. Uh, we need to be very strict. It, it, we're going to look back on cars and be like, what a barbaric age that we allowed that. Everyone's like going on about guns. And yeah, guns, you know, guns. I don't need to say anything else. Guns. Uh, but we're going to look back on just driving and be like, how did we allow that with such lenient, you know, penalties for, for being blatantly homicidal, not intentionally, but, you know, when you go out and you just, you're, you're not paying attention in your car, you're being homicidal. There's no way around it. And I'm not kidding. This isn't a joke. Uh, being a negligent driver is basically on a symbolic level being a psychopath. You know, you're, you're basically in a psychosis. If you're road rage, I mean, people worry about like homeless people screaming on the street like there's some major threat. And yet the number of people who are even experiencing mild road rage are all over the place. And we're just like, oh, that's Dennis. He's just got a lead foot. You know, it's fucked. Anyway, back to the book. Back to the book. And this was a book, not a website. Uh, this book about possibility. And they used the example of a car accident. It'd be like, you know, that's a very cut and dry situation, black and white, where they rear-ended me. But you can decide to take greater responsibility for it. And that doesn't mean t- taking the blame. There's a big difference between responsibility and blame. There's a big difference between, you know, feeling guilty. Like, I, I shouldn't have been there. I shouldn't have been there. I shouldn't, I shouldn't have minded the rule, the traffic laws and stopped at that light. Otherwise, I wouldn't have gotten hit. You, know, there's no, you don't want to be blaming the victim. You never want to blame the victim. But you do have to look at that and be like, well, hey, you know, I was there. I made the decision to go out even though I was on my way to work or school or, you know, even though I was buying tickets to something, uh, I wish I could think of something that I would be buying tickets for. Um, uh, you know, I, I have to take responsibility for the fact that I was there and that's very difficult to understand. And, but there are a lot, there are a lot easier examples that you can come up with where even if someone in your personal life does something to you, you should consider, you know, what your responsibility is in the situation. And if nothing else, you can say, you know, even though that friend flipped out on me for no reason when we were like, you know, 
buying hot dogs and like I didn't pay for his hot dog and, and somehow he thought I should. So he got mad at me. You know, he, he blamed me for the fact that I didn't buy his hot dog and we had no prior agreement that I would be purchasing his hot dog too. Um, you can still like take some level of responsibility and be like, well, I'm in this friendship and there's a certain dynamic to that friendship or, you know, I'm, I'm in, I got myself into that situation and maybe, you know, it's not, once again, it's not about blaming yourself. It's not about shifting the blame onto yourself, but I think you can take responsibility for the bigger picture, your participation in just the scene itself. And it's funny because when I read that about, you know, not seeing yourself as a chess piece, but seeing yourself as the chess board, as, as this, uh, you know, couple put it. Um, what it made me think of right away is that guy who's become popular in macho self-help circles, Jocko Wil- Wilnick, Willick. His name's Jocko, which is like the best name for a big, aggressive male. <laughs> Jocko. Uh, but uh, his whole slogan is discipline equals freedom, which is so fucking true. I, I mean that sincerely. Discipline, I feel so free the more disciplined I am and the more disciplined I get. And the nice thing about discipline is you're always getting more disciplined if you work at it. And you're and as a result, you feel so much more freedom, which sounds crazy. Like as someone who's been on both ends, both extremes of the spectrum in terms of discipline, as someone who's been extremely undisciplined, uh, and now as someone who's very disciplined and who, you know, knows that I'm not perfect, but that's not an excuse to give up that discipline. Just because I'm not perfect doesn't mean that I shouldn't continue to improve my self-discipline because, hey, it does feel a lot better. It does feel a lot more freeing. I, I sincerely mean that. Uh, but what's funny about this example of like taking responsibility for things that you actually had no control over no apparent control, things that actually happen to you, like getting rear-ended, you know, and, and it's very difficult to be like, oh, I'm the chessboard in that situation, you know, they fucked me over. But what's funny about that example in this this New Age book, uh, this East Coast N- New England New Age book, New England New Age, uh, is that it reminded me of Jocko Wilnick, and something he said, he was a Navy SEAL leader, And something he said, I watched his podcast once, and something he said in that episode that resonated with me deeply, and I had to do some math, and it ended up not being a mathematical equation, but I had to do, you know, I had to kind of like try to figure out what he meant when he said it, and he said, you know, when I was in Southeast Asia with a group of Navy SEALs, and we had a mission, you know, there would be circumstances where if it was monsoon season, uh we might fail at our mission because of the weather and we couldn't do anything about it. We can't control the weather, you know, uh, we can't control the monsoon, but basically the monsoon made it impossible for us to complete the mission. And he's like, I could easily have said, well, I couldn't do it because, you know, I did everything I could and I can't, I don't, I don't need to take responsibility because it was the monsoon. It was a monsoon. You know, he could easily, you know, he said that and he said, I easily could have done that. But he's like, I still took responsibility for it. He's like, because that's, you know, that's what's ingrained in him. I mean, that's why he is a leader of a a team of Navy SEALs or was. That's why he came up with a great slogan like discipline equals freedom and means it. and, and, And it resonates with people, you know, even me, you know, uh, the, someone who you know, certainly isn't a Navy SEAL, you know, there's a reason why, you know, 
at the core of that guy and the reason why he's successful not only in a military context, but also philosophically and in, in this macho self-help circuit, uh, which is serving a vital role. I don't follow very much of that stuff, but I feel like that kind of stuff is serving a vital role, especially in this world of constant apology, constant disclaimers, uh, a need for you know taking responsibility. The fact that he would have the, the, the balls, really, I don't know what else to say. Like, he would have the balls to take responsibility for a mission that failed purely because of a, a weather phenomenon. You know, how do you comprehend that? I had to think about that because I was like, you know, oh, like, I, you know, how do you do the math on that? And there is no math. But it does become true the more you think about it. And in particular, the more that you take responsibility for things that are seemingly outside of your control. And this doesn't mean taking some grandiose approach where you're like, everything that happens around the world revolves around me. It's not an ego thing. Because you could easily see it as some sort of narcissistic ego thing where it's like, I'm not just the chessboard. I'm not just the chessboard. I'm the, I'm the whole planet. I'm the whole universe. But I think there is a healthy way to take that approach, and I'm still kind of figuring it out myself, where it's like, you don't have to make yourself God. You don't have to make yourself, uh, you know, the everything in order to take responsibility for not only the circumstances going on around you, but also the everything going on, everything that you observe. I mean, it's almost like observer theory where the simple act of observing an object somehow changes it in some way. Uh, it's almost like that, where you have to acknowledge that in the fact that I'm aware of all the things that are in my field of vision or in my realm of consciousness somehow makes the, that, that, that's, that's, there's a relate that, that forms a relationship at the very least. And I think that's sort of the building block to this idea of becoming the chessboard or taking responsibility even when the weather, you know, causes your Navy SEAL mission to fail. I think the building block to that is being like, well, I do have a relationship to everything I'm experiencing. And if you can start with that, you can say, okay, I do have some responsibility. If I have a relationship to everything I'm seeing, hearing, experiencing, even every news article I read, even everything I see on TV, I have some kind of relationship, even if it's just like the communication of data. You know, I have some relationship to everything that I'm taking in. And then you have to consider, what are the things that I'm taking in that I'm not entirely conscious of? What are the things that are going on here or there that like I'm only peripherally aware of, but I don't acknowledge them? And in doing that, you can kind of start to see where, okay, I have a relationship to all these things that are going on, and if I have a relationship to them, there is a certain level of responsibility to those things too, even if I can't do anything about it. And I think that's part of it, is that even though it sounds very grandiose, like I'm at the center of everything, I'm at the center of all this stuff that's going on, it's all revolving around me, the chessboard. Even though it's very easy to like see it as this grandiose thing, uh, I think when you take responsibility for it, you realize that, oh, I can't necessarily do anything about this. I don't necessarily have the power to do anything about this. But by simply acknowledging that relationship, acknowledging that responsibility, it allows you to see when you have opportunities to do something about that. 
So it's not that you have this power all the time to you know impact everything or that everything you think is going to change everything, like observer theory. Uh, but it is this idea. It opens the possibility of opportunity, where you might not be looking for opportunities if you didn't take that responsibility to begin with. So in taking responsibility, you are now going to start looking for opportunities because you do feel that on your shoulders, and it isn't that heavy. As, as big as it might seem, it's not that heavy. But stop apologizing. You know, don't be a victim unless you have to be. That's another aspect of this, is this whole apology culture. Uh, it comes from, you know, the, the same place as this victim culture. And it doesn't mean there aren't real victims. And it doesn't mean that some people aren't victimized indirectly and that other people didn't have some impact on that indirectly. It doesn't mean that doesn't happen, you know. It's it's just, but you can't put, you can't live in this world of incessant apology and expect it to actually have any impact on the things around you. Because when you live in that world of constant apology, you're not looking for opportunities because you're not actually taking responsibility. And maybe there's someone out there who does both. Maybe there's someone who's like some Hindu god, and instead of having multiple arms, they're able to apologize all the time while also taking actions and looking for opportunities to you know, improve their circumstances and the circumstances around them. Maybe there's someone like that. I don't know. I don't really see very much of that. Uh, and I'm not saying these things are always mutually exclusive. I just don't really see it. Uh, but, you know, in the same way that, you know, we've kind of, uh, you know, victims in our culture have become heroes. And it doesn't mean that some victims aren't heroes, because some victims are absolutely heroes. Some of the greatest heroes have been victims, at least initially. But that doesn't mean that all victims are heroes, which seems to be the way that we are, are treating victimhood in this culture. And it's led people to try to become victims, because that means, how do I get put on a pedestal in this culture? How do I get my voice heard at the very least? Oh, become a victim of something. And they think in doing that, they become heroes, because there's all this almost heroic-type fanfare surrounding it. But in the end, when someone becomes a victim and they put themselves on that pedestal, they don't feel like a hero. These people who are doing this don't feel like heroes. Meanwhile, there are people, like I said, there are people. Here's a, I feel like I'm doing a disclaimer, but I think it's worth saying again. There are people, though, who are victims who have managed to climb up and attain true heroism. And they didn't look for that pedestal. They didn't look for you know, a pedestal so that their voice could be heard. They were taking action. They were taking responsibility. And... That's the pathway from victimhood to heroism, is taking responsibility. I would call that being the chessboard. That's the difference between being someone who got rear-ended and you're just going to blame the person who did it, and the difference between someone who says, okay, there's a bigger picture here. I have a relationship to a lot more things than just this bumper-to-bumper -bumper action. You know, I have a relationship to a lot more that's going out. And what led me here, if I take responsibility for being in this circumstance, for being in this situation, I can take responsibility for doing something with it. You know, being an advocate for stricter traffic laws. See, you can use that as an opportunity. Don't be someone who just got rear-ended by some asshole who was drunk or texting. You know, be someone who then says, hey, guess what? This is an opportunity. 
This is an opportunity to do something, to think about things, to consider that bigger picture, to not be a victim, you know, to be a, a part of everything else that's going on. And that's how you know what a hero is, because they are a part of everything that is going on around them. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free. So take.